0: We are continuing our journey through the book of John. We find ourselves this morning in John chapter 8. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 12 through 30. That can be found in page number 1062 of your Pew Bibles, or you may follow along on the screen. Again, we're looking at John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come. just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority But speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So Carl Sagan uh, was a famous scientist and a famous atheist. And he, he coined the phrase... Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. There's something that sounds right about that, huh? Because imagine if I told you that I could see through walls. Or that I could transport myself instantly from one place to another. That would be a pretty extraordinary claim, wouldn't it? Uh, you would expect me to back up a claim like that with some serious evidence if you expected uh, you know, me to, or to be believed. Or for me to be believed. But even if I could tell you what was on the other side of a wall. Or if I appeared to be in one place one moment and then all of a sudden showed up in another place a hundred miles away you'd probably still doubt my claim, wouldn't you? Because you would think there was probably a way better explanation for how I knew what was on the other side of that wall or how I appeared to be in one place and then another. In fact, I would say that you'd probably doubt your own senses before you believed that I could really see through walls or transport myself from one place to another. And the reason is, is because evidence is always ordinary. It's very ordinary for someone to know what's on the other side of a wall. It's very ordinary for somebody to be someplace. If the elders of a church went and prayed for a woman dying of cancer, and if after their prayer she was cured, the fact that she is now healthy is very ordinary. It's very ordinary for people to be healthy. Most of us are healthy right now. So we're never going to have extraordinary evidence for extraordinary claims. This is why people refused to believe in Jesus in spite of his miracles. They just thought there must be a better explanation for the ordinary result of his miracles than that he was who he said he was. So the question is not whether or not the evidence is extraordinary, The question is whether or not it's the best explanation for the claim. So in our passage today, Jesus makes another very extraordinary claim. He claims to be the light of the world. He says that if you follow him, you'll never walk in darkness and that you'll have the light of life. He stands up and makes this claim during the Feast of Booths. Which, as we've already said, is a feast given to the people of Israel to remember God's faithfulness to them as they wandered in the desert for 40 years between Egypt and the promised land. And Jesus makes this claim at night in the court of women. And the temple in Jerusalem, with two giant lamps burning behind him, meant to represent the pillar of fire and the cloud that led the people of Israel through that wilderness for 40 years. Well, that pillar of fire was God himself. And Jesus is claiming to be that light. This is a very extraordinary claim. But is it the best explanation for the evidence also when he says I am the light of the world this is the second of seven I am sayings in the book of John and as we've already noted in previous sermons the Greek construction Jesus uses to say the words I am is the same unique Greek construction that God used when he told Moses his name at the burning bush So in more than one way, Jesus is claiming to be none other than Yahweh himself, the covenant God of Israel, the eternal, all-powerful creator of all things. Naturally, the Pharisees are a little bit skeptical. And so they look for a hole in Jesus' argument. They don't think that Jesus being God himself is the best explanation for the evidence. They think they found a crack in his armor and they accused him of giving testimony about himself without a witness to back it up. But if Jesus is God, who's going to back up God's testimony? No one other than God has ever witnessed God being God. But if Jesus is God, what other testimony would you need? This is why Jesus accuses them of judging according to the flesh, or as the New International Version helpfully phrases it, judging according to human standards. Because Jesus is God, but they're judging him as if he's only human. And because God is a trinity, right, there is one God and three persons, Jesus actually does have a witness, The father who sent him bears witness about him. But as Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 19, You know neither me nor my father. For if you knew me, you would know my father also. You see, Jesus and the father are one. They are so closely related that to know one is to know the other. You cannot come to the father. Jesus has already taught us back in John chapter 6. Unless the father draws you to himself and he will always draw people to himself through the son, as Jesus will later say, and another I am saying in John, he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. And so the back and forth continues between Jesus and the Pharisees and they're like hyenas circling a zebra, except Jesus is no weak, vulnerable animal In fact, as much as they hated Jesus, we're told in verse 20 that no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John tells us this so we know that Jesus is the one who is in complete control of this encounter. And he is in control of every encounter that follows, including when his time does come. And he allows himself to be arrested. So next, Jesus lays out the most ordinary and compelling evidence for why he is who he says he is. He simply tells them, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin and where I'm going, you cannot come. See, he's telling them that he's about to go back to heaven and that they're sinners and that they know it and that they're going to die that way. And they won't get to go to heaven. But they don't understand. And so they don't really hear him. Instead, they start wondering if he's going to kill himself. (laughs) And so Jesus tells them. And you can almost imagine him grabbing them by the shoulders. Looking them in the eye and talking real slowly. As he says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's saying you are a sinner. And you know it. And you are going to die. Are you really ready to face God? The ESV translates verse 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But guess what we have here again? We have another of that same Greek construction. Jesus is saying, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. See, the English translators add the word he just to make it flow better in English, but it's not there in the Greek. Jesus is saying, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And you can almost picture Jesus's exasperation here as he says, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Think about everything Jesus has been telling us in the book of John from the beginning. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the true temple where God and man can dwell. He is the one who came down from heaven to tabernacle or to dwell with us. Jesus is our true Sabbath rest. He is our Passover meal. Are you hungry? Are you hungry for real life? Because if you are, Jesus is inviting you to believe in him, to put your trust in him and to come and to taste and to see that he is good. He's the rock in the desert that true living water flows from. And he's inviting anyone who is spiritually thirsty to come and drink and to experience living water flowing out of their heart. Every single one of us wants to be satisfied and to experience living water flowing out of our hearts. And now we learn that he is the light of the world. And if you follow him, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. So are you afraid of anything in this life? Are you afraid of facing God when you die? Then Jesus is the one that King David was talking about when he wrote, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid And the answer to both those questions is no one. Are you lost and confused this morning? And struggling to know how to live this life and how to navigate all of the unexpected trials? Then Jesus is also the one that King David wrote about when he said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Because Jesus is the word of God. And Jesus is the light of the world. John opens his gospel this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the Word, and that through his written Word, he is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. And now with that in mind, listen to what John says in the next two verses of chapter one. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, in the opening verses of John's gospel, he introduces Jesus to us with this theme of light and this contrast between the darkness. And so here Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, Standing in front of the Pharisees and the crowds as the light of the world. And they cannot see him for who he really is. Can you see Jesus for who he really is? Because unless you believe that he is. You too will die in your sins. In verse 26 of our passage, Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. So Jesus is our judge, and he declares to the world the good news of salvation and the law of God, that every one of us is required to obey perfectly, and that each one of us will be judged by. And the truth is, we are all going to die. We don't know when we're going to die. And when that happens. Do we know. What we will say. To a perfectly holy God. Who cannot allow. Anything unholy or imperfect. In his presence. Did the Pharisees really think. That they were going to die. And go to heaven. And show God. The blood of bulls and goats. Look, God, I killed a a goat. You see, none of us lives up to our own standards of right and wrong. If we wrote out a list of our values and all the things that we think should be done by someone to live a respectable and honorable life. And then if someone followed us around after that for a week, not a single one of us. Would live up to our own standards, let alone God's law. We're never going to be able to offer God our goodness. Look, God, I did good things. Jesus is God. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the one who gives living water. These are extraordinary claims. But if Jesus' claims are not true, then what are we going to do with our sin? If Jesus' claims are not true, then what are we going to do with our sin? See, that's actually the most compelling evidence to back up Jesus' claim. You are a sinner, you are going to die. And if you are not walking in his light and following him, you will die in your sin. The reality of our sinfulness, the fact of our impending deaths, is meant to strike fear into every human heart. And the most ordinary evidence in the world for the claims of Jesus Christ is our sin and the fact that we're going to die. And the question of this passage is, are you going to die in your sins? (laughs) Or are you going to believe in the one who has the power to deliver you from death and light your way to eternal life? I imagine there are some here this morning who profess to believe all that Jesus claims about himself. But I also want to remind us of something else Jesus said earlier in the book of John using the imagery of light and darkness. He said, And this is the judgment. And to receive his mercy and his grace. It's to believe that Jesus has chosen not to give you what you deserve, but instead has showered you with grace and blessing. And we do nothing in this equation. We simply receive the free gift of eternal life by faith alone. We put our trust in the one who can save us from our sins. We believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And that he lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place. And died the death we deserve to die. And then he rose again to prove it. That's it. Do you believe that? And then we repent. Which just means we change our mind about our sin. We no longer believe that living life our way is going to lead to our hunger and our thirst being satisfied. Instead, we hate our sin. We believe that only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And then the fruit of true faith And repentance is coming out of the darkness into the light. If we have true faith, then we will love the light more than the darkness. We will hate our evil deeds. We will want to expose them to the light of God's forgiveness and grace every day for the rest of our lives. And then Jesus tells the Pharisees that a time is coming when they will know that he is the great I am. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And again, right there, we have another one of those Greek constructions. Jesus is actually saying, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. In the book of John, when Jesus speaks about being lifted up, he's talking about his death on the cross. He's talking about the moment when his time does come and when he allows himself to be arrested and then is run through a sham trial in the middle of the night and beaten and spit on and nailed to a Roman cross. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees in this moment that then they will know that he is. They will know that he has always done what is pleasing to the father. And they will know that they have not always done what is pleasing to the father. In fact, Jesus is saying that they will realize that not only have they not done what is pleasing to the father, but they have nailed the king of kings. God's only son to a Roman cross just as you and I have done every time we sin. So 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he stands up in a crowd in Jerusalem, a crowd that likely included many who Jesus was speaking to on this night of the feast of booze. And Peter says to that crowd, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2 to show from the Old Testament that the death of Jesus in place of sinners was always the plan from the beginning of the world to save God's children from their sin. And then Peter said, But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So just picture this. They, they realized that they nailed the son of God to a cross. In that moment, because of their sin, they recognized that Jesus was really who he said he was. And that Jesus being who he said he was, all of a sudden became the best explanation for the fact of their sin and what it deserves. And so they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So in this moment, after Jesus was lifted up, this crowd in Jerusalem finally understood that unless they believed that Jesus is, that they are going to die in their sins. So they cried out, what shall we do? What should we do about the fact of what we've done and what we've become? Is there any way out of it? Peter's answer is repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if these folks could be forgiven for nailing the son of God to a cross. I don't care what we've done. We can be forgiven of it. In fact, it's the things that we've done and the guilt and the shame that we all carry with us. That's the thing that God uses to convince us that we have no other hope but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we're waiting for some extraordinary evidence to come along to convince us to stop living in darkness and to come into the light. Or to convince us that Jesus is who he says he is, then we are going to be waiting for a long time and we will die in our sins. But we can look ordinary reality of our own sin and our impending death. And that there's no other way to deal with our guilt and the fact that something's wrong with us other than to trust in the claims of Jesus. And then we can look at the cross and the empty tomb and the fact that God made a way to judge every sin with the punishment it deserves by suffering in our place on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ, so that sinners could come out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we we know that we are sinners. But we need to be convinced by your spirit that there is no other hope for us other than faith in Jesus Christ. And it is through faith in him every single day for the rest of our lives that we can deal with the fact of our ongoing sinfulness and through the power of your spirit can experience ourselves walking out of the darkness into the light more and more as we have a holy hatred of our sins, And we hate more and more the things we once loved and we love more and more the things we once hated. Thank you, Father, that many in this room have experienced that reality. And we pray in Jesus' name that those who have not would. Amen.